Chapter Fifteen of the Mystery of the Pinckney Draft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Pinckney Draft by Charles C. Knott. Chapter Fifteen. Conclusions of the Whole Case. There are three reasons why the Pinckney Draft has been too readily discredited. The first is our respect for Madison our belief that his knowledge far exceeded our own, and our deference to his repeatedly expressed opinion. The second is that the draft was never before the convention, and consequently never received the recognition of discussion. It was referred at the beginning to the Committee of the Whole, but it was not yet wanted, for the committee debated only abstract propositions couched in formal resolutions. It was referred to the Committee of Detail, but that committee reported only their own draft, and the convention had before them only the committees. The draft of Pinckney never came to a vote, was never discussed, and never received the slightest consideration in the convention. The third reason for discrediting the draft is to be found in the exaggerated value which has been set upon it. It has seemed to be altogether too great an instrument to have been the work of one man. We have felt in a vague way that to concede that one man could have contributed so much to the great instrument would be to detract from the work and fame of the great men whom we call the framers of the Constitution, and from the Constitution itself. But the fact is that the draft of Pinckney is not so great as it seems. Coming from a man so well equipped for the work, so experienced in the existing affairs of our mixed governments, and with such a clear comprehension of the conditions of the case, and having such a mass of material ready to his hand, the draft is not a marvelous production. That is to say, the work considered as the work of so young a man is not so wonderful as at first it appears to be. It may come within the range of the improbable, but not of the impossible. Madison was himself borne witness to the fact that the subject of a substitute for the tottering power of the Confederated States was in every man's mind, and that every intelligent man of that day was more or less fitted to draft a general outline of a new national government. The resolutions of Mr. Randolph the basis on which the deliberations of the convention proceeded, were the result of a consultation among the Virginia deputies, who thought it possible that as Virginia had taken so leading a part in reference to the federal convention, some initiative proposition might be expected from them. They were understood not to commit any of the members absolutely or definitively on the tenor of them, the resolutions will be seen to present the characteristics and features of a government as complete, in some respects perhaps more so, as the plan of Mr. Pinckney, though without being thrown into a formal shape. The moment, indeed, a real constitution was looked for as a substitute for the Confederacy, the distribution of the government into the usual departments became a matter of course with all who speculated upon the prospective change. Letter to W. A. Dewar, June 5, 1835
the difficulty of the hour was not in drafting a constitution but in drafting one which would not arouse the jealous antagonism of the several states that difficulty did not trouble pinckney his plan contemplated having the people of each state fairly that is proportionately represented in his house of delegates and in making the several states as states unequivocally submissive to the new national authority pinckney had been for two years immediately before the sitting of the convention a delegate in the congress of the confederation he had been the representative of south carolina in the grand committee appointed to consider the alteration of the articles of confederation he had been chairman of the subcommittee which drafted the committee's report of august seventeen eighty six and as professor mclaughlin has pointed out the introducing phrases as appears by reference to the manuscript papers of the old congress were written in pinckney's own hand in witnessing the inherent weakness and increasing degradation of the congress he had learned to appreciate the incapacity of the confederate system and the necessity of a national government no member of the convention better appreciated those two things or was better equipped for the task which he undertook and there was no man in the country except madison who had been through such a preparatory course and had such a combination of resources at his command he was young talented experienced ambitious wealthy unemployed and a ceaseless worker the index of madison's journal witnesses to the immense amount of work which pinckney did irrespective of the draft if we discard the draft the original draft the disputed draft and the draft described in the observations the fact will remain that pinckney was an important contributor to the work of framing the constitution pinckney's plan of government was precisely what we might expect it to be he was an able but not a sagacious statesman that is he saw clearly what he wanted but he did not see what other men wanted neither did he anticipate as a sagacious statesman would the ignorance the adverse interests and the prejudices of those who ultimately would have the power to reject or ordain the work of the convention therefore he originated none of the compromises which reconciled antagonistic views and made the constitution possible the great and difficult problems which confronted the convention were not solved by the draft Pinckney in it provided for two legislative houses and based representation on population, neglecting to place the small states on an equal footing with the large states in the Senate. He provided for one executive head, as did every government in the world, but he devised no means for uniting harmoniously the large and small states in choosing the executive the draft was an admirable instrument for its purpose an admirable model for the workmen of the convention to correct alter and enlarge it was crude and unfinished but it was in well-chosen words and simple sentences eschewing particulars and presenting in a masterly way great declaratory principles of government 
Pinckney had a few fanciful provisions in his plan, and yet he was a practical and not a fanciful constitution maker, not above taking the best material he could find wherever he could find it, resorting to himself last, and not above throwing aside his own work and beginning again and again until he had patiently wrought out the best that his ability could do. But when in estimating the constitutional value of the draft, we have given credit for the admirable construction of the plan of government, and for the clear declaratory style of the instrument, and for the preamble, and when we have discarded his original schemes, not adopted by the convention, such as the plan for the Senate, we find that the remainder of the draft is made up for the most part of details suggested by his experience in the Congress of the Confederated States, details which are culled by him with extraordinary care from the Constitution of New York and Massachusetts and the Articles of Confederation. In a word, the provisions which were rejected, such as a Senate chosen by the House of Representatives, such as a senate having the sole and exclusive power to declare war to make treaties to appoint foreign ministers and judges of the supreme court such as a national legislature having power to revise the laws of the several states and to negative and annul those which infringe the powers delegated to congress do not cause either wonder or admiration it is the valuable practical provisions of the draft which provoke doubts. Yet there are for the most part the work of selection by an author thoroughly versed in what may be called the constitutional literature and studies of the day, and who by experience knew precisely what was needed to transmute the confederated states into an efficient national government. In our minds we picture the framers of the Constitution as remarkable men, sage in council, experienced in affairs of state. But there were two young men, the one thirty-six, the other thirty, who furnished the constructive minds of the Convention. Madison was foremost in framing the Virginia Resolutions, which brought before the Convention questions for abstract discussion and bases on which to rest principles of government. Pinckney formulated a constitution which became a basis for most of the concrete work. Both had the severe practical training of members of the Congress of the Confederated States during the sorest period of its humiliating helplessness, the darkening days which preceded its dissolution. Both understood thoroughly the existing system which made the federal government dependent upon its states, and therefore inferior to them, and they knew, by what had been to them bitter experience, that the solvency of the federal government was dependent upon the voluntary contributions of each and all of the states, and that a single one of the great states, by refusing to pay its quota, could bring the nation to bankruptcy. They knew, too, that while the federal government could make treaties, the states could violate them, that they had violated them, and even then had brought the country to the verge of a foreign war. Their minds recoiled, as the minds of young men naturally would, to the opposite extreme, and each believed in the subversion of the states. 
How fully they agreed, a single illustration will disclose. On Friday, June 8th, Mr. Pinckney moved that the National Legislature should have authority to negative all laws which they should judge to be improper. He urged that such a universality of the power was indispensably necessary to render it effectual, that the states must be kept in due subordination to the nation, that if the states were left to act of themselves in any case, it would be impossible to defend the national prerogatives, however extensive they might be on paper, that the acts of Congress had been defeated by this means, nor had foreign treaties escaped repeated violations, that this universal negative was in fact the cornerstone of an efficient national government. Mr. Madison seconded the motion. He could not but regard an indefinite power to negative legislative acts of the states as absolutely necessary to a perfect system. Experience had evinced a constant tendency in the states to encroach on the federal authority, to violate national treaties, to infringe the rights and interests of each other, to oppress the weaker party within their respective jurisdictions. A negative was the mildest expedient that could be devised for preventing these mischiefs. But it was for these same reasons that neither Madison nor Pinckney attempted to frame a compromise. Each wanted a national government with unequivocal powers. Each ignored the jealousy of the small states, the apprehensions of the slave states, the increasing preponderance of the free states. Both intended that these elements of distrust should be absorbed by the overwhelming power of the new national government. For more than a hundred years the American people have kept the cardinal idea of these youthful statesmen buried from sight or contemplation as something impractical or dangerous, but they are now beginning to ask themselves whether an overwhelming national government is not the better agency for the control and management of their modern, complex national life. Considering that Madison and Pinckney worked in such different fields, the abstract and the concrete, it is remarkable that the work of the one repeatedly and constantly agrees with the work of the other. Considering that they had worked side by side for years, conferring daily on the same absorbing subject, encountering the same difficulties, thwarted by the same obstacles, defeated by the same incapacities, their minds intent on the same ends, it is not remarkable that an identity of purpose was followed, though in different forms, by an identity of results, and that the work of Pinckney was little more than an embodiment of the propositions of Madison. Together they furnished just what the necessities of the hour required, ideas of government for consideration and discussion, formulated constitutional provisions for amendment and adoption, Greatly to be regretted it is that the two men who did such valuable interserviceable work for the cause to which their lives were then devoted, and whose names should be most closely associated in the history of the Constitution, now appear so irretrievably antagonistic. There are some provisions in the draft which are not sustained by the confirmatory fact of being incorporated in the draft of the Committee of Detail, 
and notably the following. The legislature of the United States shall have the power to pass laws for arming, organizing, and disciplining the militia of the United States. Article 6. This power to organize and discipline the militia was a radical transfer of authority from the states to the new national government, a power which the committee were not instructed to transfer, and which accordingly they did not incorporate in their draft. But it is specifically set forth in the observations as one of the provisions of the draft, and on the 18th of August, Pinckney advocated in the convention substantially the same thing. The draft also provides that the legislature of the United States shall have power to provide for the establishment of a seat of government for the United States, not exceeding X miles square, in which they shall have exclusive jurisdiction. Article 6. This also was a radical innovation which the committee could not adopt without authority. But it was also specifically set forth in the observations, and on the 18th of August, Pinckney moved in the convention to fix and permanently establish the seat of government of the United States in which they shall possess the exclusive right of soil and jurisdiction. The draft also provides nor shall the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus ever be suspended, except in cases of rebellion or invasion. Article 6. The Convention shrank from the insertion of a Bill of Rights in the Constitution because, as was subsequently explained, it was feared that it might bring up the subject of slavery, one member insisting that it should contain a declaration against slavery, and another that it should specifically declare that it did not extend to slaves. Accordingly, the committee did not incorporate this declaration of right in their draft, but it is set forth in the observations, and on the 20th of August, Pinckney proposed in the convention a stronger and more explicit provision. These provisions, therefore, are sustained by the public contemporaneous avowal of Pinckney that they were in the draft which he had prepared for the use of the convention, and by the recorded facts that when he found that the committee had not considered them as within their jurisdiction, and had not incorporated them in their draft, he brought them before the convention and sought to have them inserted in the Constitution. As it is certain that the ideas were his, and that he formulated them into provisions substantially identical with those in the State Department draft, at the time when the convention was considering the respective subjects, it requires very little additional assurance to make us accept them as a part of the draft presented to the convention. Conversely, there are provisions which may have been in the draft presented to the convention, but which are not in the draft filed in the State Department. The most notable of these is the one relating to patents and copyright. Pinckney says in the observations, There is also an authority to the national legislature to secure to authors the exclusive right to their performances and discoveries. And on the 18th of August, he moved in the convention to insert, among other powers, to grant patents for useful inventions. If the provision was in the original draft, 
the committee of detail were not authorized to adopt it and did not but the convention did and it became a part of the constitution pinckney was constantly nursing his draft revising amending rearranging and it is not improbable that he inserted this provision in one copy and neglected to insert it in the others but he certainly seems to have been the author of it from one point of view it may seem a needless constitutional provision for a national legislature could so legislate without it but under the british constitution monopolies were a prerogative of the crown and a patent was deemed a monopoly pinckney therefore did wisely in expressing assigning patent rights and copyrights to the legislative branch of the government giving to the mind work of the inventor or author the character of property and the safeguard of the law another provision is the compromise relating to slave representation in the state department draft it is provided that the number of the delegates shall be regulated by the number of inhabitants article three and that the proportion of direct taxation shall be regulated by the whole number of inhabitants of every description in the observations he says that his plan contains a provision for empowering congress to levy taxes upon the states agreeable to the rule now in use an enumeration of the white inhabitants and three-fifths of other descriptions in the convention on the twelfth of july mr pinckney moved to amend mr randolph's motion so as to make blacks equal to the whites in the ratio of representation this he urged was nothing more than justice the blacks are the laborers the peasants of the southern states they are as productive of pecuniary resources as those of the northern states they add equally to the wealth and considering money as the sinews of war to the strength of the nation it will also be politic with regard to the northern states as taxation is to keep pace with representation this is conclusive as to pinckney's views it confirms the draft in the state department and shows too that the copy of the draft on which the observations were founded differed in this detail from the draft presented to the convention on a review of the entire case i have reached the following conclusions one the draft in the state department agrees so closely with the draft of the committee of detail in form in phraseology in structure in arrangement in extent in its beginning and its ending that unquestionably the one draft must have followed the other there can be no middle ground here two with the uncovering of the committee's draft and the bringing of the observations into the case and the confirmatory matter in the randolph and wilson drafts it becomes evident that the suspected fraud was an impossibility that is to say when pinckney described in the observations the draft which he was subsequently to present to the convention he thereby described the draft which he was ultimately to place in the department of state in a word if a fraud was perpetrated in eighteen eighteen it must have begun in seventeen eighty seven before the convention met 
which is a reductio ad absurdum. 3. The observations were printed and published during the lifetime of every member of the convention, including the five members of the Committee of Detail, and Pinckney immediately republished them in the South Carolina State Gazette. In 1819, when the copy of the draft was published and circulated as a public document, there were sixteen members of the convention still living, among whom was Madison, the chronicler of the convention. It must therefore be held that Pinckney did not conceal anything or shrink from investigation, and that all which he did was done in due time, in the light of day, and in the most open manner. Indeed, it may be asked whether there ever was an historical document which was so doubly published and declared both prior to and at the time when it was produced as the Pinckney draft, or which could have been so easily refuted if it was really refutable? A court of justice in such a case would say, The plea of fraud is sustained by no evidence whatever. To allow a document which was placed in the files of the government at the instance of a high officer of state to be attacked and discredited because of the doubts and suspicions of individuals, no matter how eminent and intelligent, would be a monstrous abuse of authority which cannot be upheld in either law or morals. 4. A question may be raised as to whether the Journal of Madison can properly be admitted as evidence against the claim of Pinckney, and it must be conceded that Madison occupied the position of a controversialist, that during the whole period of controversy his chronicle of the convention was in his exclusive possession, and that it was within his power at any moment to obliterate parts or passages which, coming to the knowledge of the world, would weaken his own position and vindicate Pinckney and sustain the draft. But such a suggestion against the integrity of such a man is not to be lightly entertained. It is no more to be believed without evidence, and evidence of the most clear and unequivocal character, that Madison, for his own purposes, obliterated historical evidence than that Pinckney fabricated it. Each was a member of the Congress of the Confederation. Each was a delegate to the Great Convention. Each was eminent for his zeal in the prolonged and often hopeless work of framing the Constitution. Each has left behind him a long record of distinguished public life. The one laboriously prepared the only draft of the Constitution that was made for the use of the Convention and the other laboriously prepared the only chronicle of the framers' work which the world possesses. It is not for the bitterness of controversy heedlessly to assail such men. 5. The Journal of Madison must be received as authentic history. At the same time, it must be borne in mind that it was not written with the fullness and precision of the modern stenographer. Madison could not transcribe the words which a speaker uttered and leave us to ascertain the speaker's meaning from his words. All that such a reporter could do was to record what he believed to be the speaker's meaning. It follows that condensed passages, isolated sentences, 
casual turns of expression cannot be used as admissions against Pinckney, and must be considered with disinterested caution, if they be considered at all. Time which destroys also discloses, and time may bring to light some record which will change the conclusions of today. But as the case now stands, it must be said that the Pinckney draft in the Department of State is, with the exception before noted, all that Pinckney represented it to be. End of chapter 15